Y'all can be seated. In January 1973, the United States Supreme Court issued an opinion on what is perhaps one of the most famous cases in American judicial history, Roe versus Wade. In that opinion, the Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution granted a general protection for a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy. Two days ago, 49 years after that landmark Roe versus Wade decision, the United States Supreme Court issued another opinion in a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. In this opinion, the court overturned Roe, stating that the United States Constitution did not, in fact, guarantee a right to an abortion. When that decision was published on Friday, our country was once again thrown into conflict and deep division. This issue is more nuanced and complicated than many of us realize or care to admit. We here at the church at Lachlan Springs stand on and celebrate the sanctity of life. All life. Born and yet to be born. As such, we celebrate anything that advances and furthers that sanctity of life. And I am proud to serve in a church family that believes that not only in theory, but in practice. You know, it is amazing, over a year ago, as I sat and I planned our 2022 sermon series, the Lord led me to the book of James for our summer study. Over a year ago, the Lord planned that last Sunday, June 19th, we would land on the first chapter of James, which ends with this verse. True, pure undefiled religion is caring for the widows and the orphans. We serve in a church that believes that desperately. You can see it in this local expression of the body of Christ in the way we love on and serve and resource organizations like Young Lives that cares for and equips and loves and disciples teenage moms and their babies right here in this community, right here in this building. You see it in our larger church family where we have a robust, vibrant, comprehensive 
foster and adoption ministry, a ministry that, that serves foster and adoptive families, a ministry that, that serves vulnerable children, a ministry that serves birth families, pregnant women that don't know what to do and don't know what their options are. Our church family did not start that on Friday. It has been growing and serving our community for years. We also must recognize that this past Friday was not a day of celebration for many in our community, for many in our congregation. There are those sitting in this room right now. There are those on your street. There are those at your work that on Friday felt attacked. They felt as though they were called less than. They are scared. They are vulnerable. They feel marginalized. They feel unsafe, and they feel angry. I get that. It is important that we get that. We celebrate life. We also recognize this is not you versus them, however you define you and them. This is not a war to be won, but a faith to be lived out. And, and here in this church, that is exactly what we will do. We will live out that faith in love and in action, in great humility, reflecting the grace and peace and mercy of our Savior in the process. If you want to know how to be involved, if you want to know about Young Lives, if you want to know about our foster and adoption ministry, if you want to know how we love on and resource women and pregnancy crisis centers, if you need any of those resources, or if you just want to talk this through, there are QR codes all over this building, forms you can fill out, or I, I want you to have my personal contact information. Send me an email. Send me a text message. Let's set up a coffee and let's talk. This morning, what we are going to do as a church body is we are going to pray. I want you to take a moment. Find a posture of peace and of silence.
Lord, this morning we come to you grateful that you are God and we are not. Celebrating life. Celebrating the opportunity to live out our faith. We ask, be near to those that mourn. Be near to those that are afraid. Give us the courage and the wisdom and the discernment to love them well. Be glorified in this moment. We pray these things in your son's sweet and precious name. Amen. As I mentioned, this summer we are in the process of walking through the New Testament book of James. It's a book written by uh, the brother of Jesus himself. James, the brother of Jesus, did not actually receive his brother as the Messiah until post-resurrection. Seeing your dead brother living again will change a man. And it certainly changed James. He became one of the great leaders in the Jerusalem church. He became an incredible pastor. And it's in that season of life that he penned this letter to scattered believers around the world. Last week, Cameron Russell was here uh, teaching us, and, and he, had, he had landed on that, that final passage in the first chapter of James, where James begins to unfold and unpack this idea of faith in action. Doing the word rather than just hearing the word. It does end with that classic verse, James 1, 27, true, pure, undefiled religion is this. It's taking care of those that cannot care for themselves. And individually, it's focusing on God and not the world. Now, here's the question. Why is that important? If you were here last week, if you were listening to Cameron last week, you might have had this thought. All right, Hannah has stood on that stage for years and told me it does not matter what I do. It does not matter where I've been, what I've done, or what I will do. My salvation is by grace, through faith alone, period. If that's the case... Why does it matter if I care for widows and orphans? Why does it matter if I do the word rather than just hear the word? Well, you are not the first person to ask that question, which is why in James chapter 2, James begins to lean into just 
that. This morning, we're going to be looking at James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. I'm going to read a big chunk of Scripture. But as we do each week in this place, I would love it if those of you who are able would stand with me as we read God's Word. God, through the hand of James, writes, beginning in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food? And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works. I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Lord, this morning we hold in our hands the living, breathing word of the living, breathing God. Do not ever let us take it for granted. We ask, speak now, for your servants are listening. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Okay, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago when we began this series in James, I confessed to you that for a long time, early in my faith journey, this was my least favorite book of the Bible. Because my favorite book of the Bible was Romans, and James and Romans seemed to conflict. James and Paul seemed to butt heads, and it frankly made me really nervous. This is that passage. This is the passage that makes you look at it and say, well, hold, hold, hold on just a second. Let's pump the brakes, James, because this seems to be in conflict with everything I hold dear about my salvation. Before we get into this passage, let's start here. Our salvation is found by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith in him, period. That is the end of that sentence. If you add anything to that, it is blasphemy. That is the plan of salvation. Romans chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, so many other places in the scripture are crystal clear in our salvation by grace through faith alone. That's it. This 
does not conflict with that. Now the question becomes, you know, Romans 3, 24 and 25, when Paul is incredibly clear in saying we are justified freely by the grace of Jesus Christ and we receive that grace through faith alone. How does that not conflict with James chapter 2, verse 24 that says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? <laughs> Those seem to be polar opposites, don't they? The simple answer to that question is James and Paul are using that word justify very differently. In every language, there are nuances to words. In English, we have so many homonyms that it gets incredibly confusing. One word can mean several different things. This word justification is not different. Paul is using that word justification to, to describe the moment that you are declared righteous, declared not guilty, covered in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That moment comes through faith alone, period. James, on the other hand, is using the word justification to describe the residue of our faith, the evidence of real, saving, transformative faith. The way, the way that James is using this term would be more similar to the way we would use the term sanctification. This, this is much more of a Romans chapter 6 word than a Romans chapter 3 word. And James begins to unpack that exact idea which we're going to explore this morning. And he starts there in verse 14 with the base question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? This is the question that James begins with. If someone just says the words, I believe in Jesus. If someone at church camp or revival or on a Sunday morning walks down the aisle and says the sinner's prayer, but there's never any evidence of that in their life, are those words real faith? Can what that person said be a salvific moment? In order to illustrate that, he gives us an example in these, in these next verses. If a brother or sister is without clothes or lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? What James is doing, he's, he's giving us the classic kind of prayer hands emoji, hashtag thoughts and prayers, you know, black square Ukrainian flag on our social media feeds. He's saying, if that's what you do, and that's all you do, are your words meaningful or completely empty? The answer, James says, is they're completely empty. If someone comes up to you and says, oh my gosh, you know, my, my, my wife and I, we are, we're really struggling. Oh, our marriage is, is hurting right now. We, we've got two young kids and we just can't get away and, and we're both trying to work and make ends meet and then we come home and the kids are screaming and they never sleep and we never sleep and we're at each other's throats constantly. 
And we look at that person and say, oh, man, that's terrible. I really hope you guys find some rest. And then we walk away. They're probably thinking, that, and I really appreciate your words, but I just need a babysitter. Will somebody just come help? Just give us a moment. So often that's what we do, and we think because we've said something. We think because we've sent a text message. We think because we put something on our social media feed. Those words are evidence of what we believe. Returning to this abortion conversation, you are all no doubt well aware that the most prominent criticism of the church, the most prominent criticism of advocates of pro-life is that in general, they are pro-life up until the moment a child is born. And then nothing happens. Now, thankfully, that idea is way over-exaggerated. The actions of our church family, through the organizations that we serve, through the families that we serve, through the pregnant women that we serve, through the resources that we provide, thankfully, we are not unique. There are thousands of congregations like ours that do those same things. Sadly, that is not universally true in every corner of the church in America. Oftentimes, let me rephrase that, sometimes we will advocate hard that an unborn child is born. And from that point, it's a pat on the back and a hearty good luck. That's James chapter 2. James says, if that's all you do, do you really believe what you say you believe? That's the bottom line question of this passage. In, in verses 18 and 19, it actually begins to get scarier. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Some will say, you know what, they're basically the same thing. James responds, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. That's straight out of the Shema, straight out of the Old Testament. I believe that the Lord God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's what Jesus went back to to say. That is the most important commandment. That's the summary of the law. It's the Shema. You believe that the, the, God, the Lord God is one. Golf clap. James says that doesn't get you anywhere. You can say that all day long. Even the demons understand that. It comes down to what does it really mean to believe? I had a dear, dear friend. Have a dear, dear friend. One of, if not the smartest humans I have ever been around, certainly 
most well-educated, well-learned, well-read in the areas of doctrine and theology. So much so that he built a library in his, in his basement with hundreds, potentially thousands of volumes of doctrine, theology, commentaries. He would spend hours upon hours a week in this basement, in these books. He and I have had several conversations about when does the moment come that everything you believe, you know this book frontwards and backwards better than anyone I have ever been around. When does the moment come that you put that into practice? We have had many conversations about doctrine and theology as idolatry. Understand this this morning. Mere intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. Mere intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. To say that another way, you can believe everything right and still be wrong. You can know all of this as a purely academic pursuit, and it never infiltrate your heart and your soul. As James continues to unpack this, he gives us a couple of examples, Abraham and Rahab. Now, the, the example that, that James uses of Abraham is fascinating to me because so often we get in these conversations and we do think that Paul and James are conflicting. We do think that Paul's letter to, to Romans and the book of James conflicts. But they both use the exact same example. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 4, in Romans chapter 3, Paul describes salvation by grace through faith alone, period. In order to unpack that, Paul gives us the example in the very next chapter of Abraham. He says, see, wasn't Abraham justified by his faith? Before anything else happened, before any promise was complete, before he became a Jew, before he was circumcised, before all of that, we're told in Genesis 15, 6, that, that Abraham believed, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. You see, Paul says, your salvation is in your faith. James uses the exact same example, as a matter of fact, the exact same verse. And he talks about the works of Abraham. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his promised son, literally sacrifice his promised son, Isaac, for God, for his faith. And James says, you see, in that moment, his faith became complete. Now, James is not saying in that moment Abraham was declared righteous. As a matter of fact, he, he points out that Genesis 15, 6. 
James, or Abraham believed, and that was declared righteous. All that happened long before, years before, decades before Isaac. That was the moment that Abraham was declared righteous. What James is saying is you could see his faith in what he did. This is the residue, the evidence of a transformative, salvific, saving faith. Look at Abraham. He's the perfect example. Look at Rahab. A pagan prostitute that we see in Joshua chapter 2. She receives two spies, two messengers from Israel. And as soon as she, she receives them, she sees their God and she recognizes their God is the one and only true God. And she can't deny it to the point that the action she takes puts her own life and family in danger. Evidence, residue of a true saving faith. If those are the two examples that, that James gives us, both out of the Old Testament, let me give you one other example. You guys remember the story in Mark chapter 2 of, of the guys and, and their buddy was paralyzed and they wanted to see Jesus. But by Mark chapter 2, Jesus' reputation, his ministry had grown so much. Everywhere he went, he had huge crowds around him. So he's in Capernaum, and he's in this house, and people are hanging from the rafters trying to, trying to hear him speak. Such a crowd around him that it, it would have gathered for a block. So these young men, that they have their friend, and, and all they know is if we can get our buddy to Jesus, Jesus can heal him. They're so adamant about this. They go around the back. They climb up on the roof. They saw a hole in the roof, which is just like a baller move. And, and they put him on a rug, and they drop him down through this hole so he can see Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. The very end of that story. Seeing their faith. Jesus told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith. Real, saving, transformative faith is not just something you hear. It can be seen. It is action. The question becomes, where can the world see your faith? Where can the world see our faith as a congregation? What does our faith look like, not what does our faith sound like. As we continue to walk through James, it is a question we're going to ask ourselves over and over and over 
again. If you remember, immediately before James, we walked through John's first letter. John writes this letter to believers, and in chapter 5 of 1 John, he says, you can know if your faith is real. And throughout the letter, he, he tells them how they know. You can know by the way you love. And in 1 John chapter 3, he goes a step further and he says, when we love out of a true saving faith, it is more than just words. It is love in action and in deeds. James is telling us the same thing. You can know. And how you know, it's when your faith does. This morning as Charlie and the worship team come back up to, to lead us in a song of response, I, I want us to take just a few moments to pray together. I want us to take just a few moments as individuals to approach our creator. This is a confusing time in our culture. Our hearts and our minds and our spirits can be distracted, can be muddied. So take just a moment clear your mind. Approach your Savior. Pray a prayer of gratitude. To the one who took on your sin and your guilt and your shame. So that you may be released to commune intimately with your creator for all eternity. Ask, Lord, humbly for the opportunity to show our faith. May it rock us to our very core. Fill us with your love, 
your grace, your mercy. To the point that we cannot help but for it to flow into every corner of our lives, our families, and our communities. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.